This morning, could you turn to the, the book of Luke? And we want to read the, uh, just the first few verses in the book of Luke in chapter 1. Okay, Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This morning, I want to speak about the gospel uh, eyewitness accounts and the historical reliability of the Gospels. Now, I'm going to explain to you why I have taken this as my subject and topic. About 15 months ago or so, I decided to go on to uh, Twitter uh, and uh, engage with atheist thinkers on um, Christianity. And uh, it's developed quite a bit. And I can tell you for every night, Clat will confirm this, for about the last 15 months, I have been in either a discussion with an atheist defending the faith, talking about aspects of it, or with other Christians who I've come in contact with throughout the world discussing aspects of, uh, of our faith. And it's been quite enlightening in many instances. But one man I have been in t- contact with for virtually all that time, he sent me a 43-page email telling me why he is an a- atheist, uh, detailing all the problems uh, within this, the Bible and within Christianity itself. Now, I, I respect this man. I must admit, I've developed a bit of a relationship with him, and he has threatened to come over and uh, take me out for a meal at some, on some occasion because we, we have got on very well. But for by him, uh, with his objections, I've, the, the most, uh, or what comes across most from these people is that the, the Gospels are unreliable. They are not historical. They are written much, much later than the events that are described in them. And uh, the people that wrote them are anonymous and didn't know really uh, anything about what actually happened in Jesus' life. So I want to counter that. Now, I know most of you are saying here, well, I believe the gospel anyway, but look, you have children or grandchildren going to university, and they will be confronted with this kind of uh, objection. So after this morning, you'll be going to, you'll go to Queen's and deliver a lecture on the reliability and eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. So let me start by a, a very simple thing, but something which isn't really taken into account. It's simply the very names that are mentioned in the Gospels. There are all four Gospel writers, they mention characters by name, and there's other characters they don't mention. I'll just run through the four Gospels. In Mark, we have 34 anonymous characters and 33 named. In Luke, there's 54 anonymous and 44 named. In Matthew, there's 36 anonymous, 33 named. And in John, 15 anonymous and 20 named. Now, you may say to yourself, well, how does this help with the, the historical reliability and the historicity of the, uh, and the eyewitness accounts of the Scripture? But, but before I answer that question, I don't know if any of you have heard, ever heard of the Jesus Seminar. It's a group of scholars who have got together, uh, New Testament scholars, and they, in their wisdom, have decided that about 20% of what Jesus said is authentic and can only be taken as reliable. Uh, within the study of uh, 
Jesus and the quest for Jesus, it's actually termed, you have, there's this phrase, the Jesus of history as opposed to the Christ of faith. What they're saying is there that, yes, there's an historical man by the name of Jesus who lived in Palestine, first century. He had some followers, went around preaching, was crucified, and that's it. But then they tell us that the Christ of faith is this made-up character who had uh, the miraculous birth, who done miraculous things during his life, and after his death rose from the, the grave. And they tell us these two characters have to be separated. But I see a different way to look at this, and it's simply this. It's the Jesus of testimony. And that testimony is found in the gospel record. Men have testified to his miraculous powers and his resurrection. And this is what we're actually going to be looking at today, this historicity of the gospels. So the question is, how do the names help us in our quest for this? Uh, A Jewish scholar by the name of Tal Alan uh, she has produced a, a lexicon of some 3,000 names from late antiquity. Uh, this stretches from the period of 330 BC right through to 200 AD. And in the period that we're interested in, the first half of the first century, when you line up the names in the New Testament accounts or the gospel accounts with this lexicon of names which were popular, there is remarkable similarity the names match. Now, you may think that isn't much of a, of a deal, but I'll try to explain as best I can. So here we have people in the Gospels who are named. We have people who are not named. We have also got nicknames occurring in the Gospels, and we have people with the same name occurring in the Gospels, and they then get designated with, with, with uh, say, we have Mary of Magdalene, uh, Mary of Magdala, should I say. Uh, we have Joseph of Arimathea. We have um, Simon, uh, who was a, from Cyrene. So the people with the same names, characters with the same names, get um, an actual little bit of information added to it to distinguish them one from another. Uh, one of the great scholars of New Testament studies, a uh, man by the name of Richard Bauckham, has said that this lexicon that this woman has produced is invaluable to the study of the New Testament. Now, someone might say, well, sure, an author, someone making it up might be able to discover what the popular names were at the time and and introduce them into his writings. But what they wouldn't do is introduce main characters with the same name. Just wouldn't do it. It it would be all of a, a flow. They would be wanting all the names and characters to flow. Uh, We know that Jesus' own father was called Joseph. But he also had a brother called Joseph. And in Mark uh, chapter 6 and verse 3, uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I can't say here with any kind of authority what the Greek word is, but those who are tell me that when Mark records Joseph, Jesus' brother, he uses a shortened form of the name as Jose. Uh, and what this, what this would be like for us in the modern terms would be a father and a son both called James, where one would be Jim, one would be James, or in my case, a father and a son both called William, and we would have a William and a Billy, or a big Billy and a wee Billy, as it was in our house. But you, you, see, you see here that this little insight, this is showing us uh, an eyewitness account and also an authentic account, because Jesus' father, Joseph, was being separated from his brother, Joseph, by the shortened form 
of his name. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of a list of uh, the most popular names in, in, uh, in, in Palestine at this time. I'll give you the six most popular male names and the six most popular female names. Now, these names aren't just found in the Gospels. We are, they're found in the writings of Josephus. They're found in the writings of, of other desert texts that are, that, that are from the area. And they're also found on things called ossuaries. Now, and what an ossuary is, is, is a bone box. Now, this might sound a little strange, but what they would have done back then was they would have gathered the bones of their deceased relatives after a period of time when the, the, the flesh had had gone from the bones, and they would have put the bones in a box and put the names on, and you could literally, they have actually found boxes with entire families contained in them. The names are on it and the bones are there. But anyway, one to six, I'm giving you the English form of the names. We have Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, and in sixth, Jesus himself. Uh, Peter, the name Peter actually is a way down in joint 80th uh, on, on the list of, of names. <laughs> now, the most popular uh, women, uh, names for women, Mary, it's quite obvious, number one. Mary is the most popular. Then it goes down to Siloam. Uh, the third most popular name actually isn't recorded in the Gospels. Uh, then we have Martha, Joanna, and Sapphira. I actually was thinking about this. Why is the third most popular name not recorded? It's quite interesting that because surely if someone was making it up, they would have introduced the third most popular name. It's actually quite an interesting name, and I hope I pronounce this correctly. It's Sheila Zion, Shilam Zion. It's quite a, an exotic sounding name, and I think that someone making a story up would actually have introduced it. So even the very names that we read in the Gospels are telling us that we're dealing with historical records and eyewitness accounts. But look, there's more, much, much more. I'm sure you've heard the term uh, the church fathers or the early church fathers. If I tell you names like Polycarp, Polycrates, Papias, Irenaeus, some of you will have heard those names. These people are important for, in church history. They have left us documented records. Papias was an historian who highly praised eyewitness accounts. Uh, he said through his own writings, he said that when the disciples of the elders were in the area where he lived, he made sure he got to question them. He made sure he got as much information from them as possible. And he highly praised eyewitness testimony. Next to that, he, he said that the uh, testimony from those who were, uh, had questioned the eyewitnesses was, was good and valuable. And then you have things like the oral tradition. Of course, we haven't anywhere near enough time to discuss the oral tradition, but the oral tradition in the New Testament concerning the Gospels is a tremendous and very rewarding study in itself. So these, these uh, Gospel writers let's ask the question, were any of them eyewitnesses? Well, look, the answer is that Mark and Luke definitely weren't eyewitnesses. And I'm going to explain why that's not uh, sort of a, a devastating sort of thing, you know, to, to know. Matthew 
probably was. There are those who say he wasn't, but I firmly believe he was, uh, you know, with studying the different things. I firmly believe Matthew was, and John, we can definitely say John was an eyewitness to the events that he was recording. So I want to start with the book of Mark, written in around 65 AD. Uh, the dates, you know, aren't necessarily 100% accurate, but this seems to be the, the, the most sort of common, or the consensus. It was written about 65 AD. That's roughly 30, between 30 and 35 years or so after the crucifixion. Mark is the earliest gospel that was written. I know it's not the first gospel in our on our Bibles, but it's the first gospel that was written. Now, we know that the word gospel means good news, and when we think about the word gospel, that's what we think of, good news, but the gospel is more. The gospel is also biography. Now, I know it's not written in the same style as a modern biography. I have read several, maybe a dozen biographies of different people over the time, okay, and they are, yes, they are different to what the gospel accounts of a biography is, but they fall very, very much in line as to into what ancient biography or biography from antiquity would be. And not only that, they are history. The gospel writers were definitely intending us not just to see theology, not just to see story, but to see his history being written, written as well. Now, the gospel of Mark is almost certainly uh, the, 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 contains the memories uh, and the eyewitness accounts of Peter and Peter himself. But the thing about Mark, Mark didn't put the things in order. Uh, he wrote faithfully and he recorded what Peter had seen faithfully. That's not in dispute, but he didn't put them in order. He would have an event, maybe in the second, third chapter, which happened before an event that he made it recorded in the sixth or seventh chapter. So he, we're not talking about a chronological order here in the Gospel of Mark. And he also, there are characters in Mark which are anonymous, but which John, the, uh, in his book, records their names. So there has to be a reason for this. Uh, there's a woman in Mark 14. Mark doesn't say who her name is. There's a man who wields a sword. He doesn't mention his name. And there's a man who gets his ear cut off. Mark does not mention their names. And yet John does. John tells us that that lady who does the anointing is called Mary. He tells us that the man wielding the sword was Simon Peter. And that the man who lost his ear was a servant called Malchus. Why would that be? Well, many have said it's because of what a term that they have used is protective anonymity. And what they meant by that was that Peter needed to be protected in a way that he couldn't be associated with this event because what he'd done would have been worthy of uh, execution. Mary herself, uh, what she had done when anointing Jesus was, was part of the messianic uh, tradition, or Jesus actually turned the event into a messianic thing, and that would have been something that would have put Mary's life in danger as well. And when I read, read, read that and read scholars saying that, I can see a lot of sense in what they're saying there, and I believe this to be the case, that, that Mark was, uh, wasn't recording their names simply for that reason, because when we get to John, it's, much, it's more than likely that Peter Malchus and Mary had all died by this time because John was writing much, much later than Mark was writing, maybe 40 years later, 35, 40 years later. So it wouldn't have mattered about the anonymity for them at, at, that, at that point. 
But there's another person that Mark mentions as well. It's very interesting. In Mark 14 and 51, we read about a young man who flees the scene naked. Uh, there are those who say this, this could well have been Mark himself. I don't know, uh, but I think a better case is made for this young man as being Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead, the, man, the, the, the brother of Mary and Martha. I'm not going to make the case for that uh, definitively, but the, the case is, it can be made very, very strongly that it was him. And indeed, there is a lot of sense of, in Mark keeping this man's name anonymous because we know that the Jewish authorities sought to put Lazarus to death simply because of, of, of his testimony to who Jesus was. Uh, so, so this little example of Mark keeping people anonymous, uh, this actually adds to the whole uh, feel that we're talking about an historical and an eyewitness account. Now we'll turn to Matthew. I'm not a church historian. I haven't really studied that much in, in, in church history. Just, just dabbled a wee bit in it. But I know that from what I've read that Matthew is the most uh, read book in the early church. It was the most quoted from. Excuse me. The most copied, the most read, the most preached in the early centuries of the church. Now, Matthew was written after Mark, and it contains 90% of what Mark wrote. This is why some say that Matthew couldn't have been an eyewitness because why would he have depended so heavily on Mark if he himself had seen the, these events happening? But Papias says something uh, which I believe that shows that Matthew indeed was an eyewitness. He says that Ma uh, Matthew decided to write his own account and put everything in order. So what I see here is that Matthew, after reading Mark's account, okay, Mark, you've, 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 you've told us the truth. Everything you've written is, is factual, but you haven't put it in chronological order. I'm going to do that. So this is why I believe that Matthew is an eyewitness. And he, uh, this is why he sort of like contained, there's so much of Mark contained in his book, but it's in more of, a, of an order. But even though there is 90% of, of Mark there, there's still a huge amount of, of unique material. Uh, in fact, there's about 40, 30, 40, I think there's nearly 40 pieces of unique material to, uh, to Matthew in his own particular gospel. Now, his gospel is, there's an awful lot of Jewish content in it there, and this is why people would say that Matthew was writing primarily to the Jews of his time. So while the gospels of Matthew and Mark don't uh, you know, explicitly say who wrote them. It's inconceivable that the early church would have attributed Matthew and Mark to be the authors of these gospels, especially Mark, because we know that Mark and Paul had a fallout. Now we know that they were. We know, we know that through the, the, the readings in the Book of Acts. But, but we know that they were reconciled. But no one would make up a story and put in a name that sort of had a little bit of controversy surrounding it because Mark uh, had a bit of a, a falling out with the Apostle Paul at one stage. So we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke. Like, I'm going through these quickly. I mean, I'm just sort of scratching the surface of, the, of, the, of this, this uh, as, a, as a study. 
The Gospel of Luke, uh, along with the, the book of Acts, Luke wrote both of them, that's 28% of the, of the whole of the New Testament. That's a huge amount of the whole New Testament was written by this man, Luke. Now, Luke is the longest of our four Gospels. Uh, before anyone tells me Matthew's got more chapters, uh, that's not how you decide what's the longest. It's word count that matters, and Luke's gospel has got about a thousand or more words in it than Matthew's gospel. So here we have a man who has written uh, the longest of the four gospels. Now, the, the, we learn from Scripture that Luke is a physician, but he's also an historian, and he's also a theologian. He records for us about 50% of what, uh, uh, in his gospel, uh, and reproduces about 50% of what's in uh, the Gospel of Mark. But there's also things which are unique to him. There's about 26 or so different uh, things which are unique to, to uh, Luke's Gospel. In fact, well, uh, we know that he was a companion of Paul. He was a traveling companion of Paul. In fact, if you read in Luke chapter 22, uh, what Luke said about the, uh, the breaking of bread, about and at the Last Supper, and compare it to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're virtually identical. So I can see the scenario where Paul and Luke are discussing this, and Paul is getting his information from Luke himself, because Luke had already discussed this with eyewitnesses, and had already un understood what was said uh, uh, at this particular time. Uh, that, that actually all feeds into what we know as sort of the, the oral tr tradition. You see, this man, Luke, he's quite clearly well-educated. Uh, he's a Greek speaker, uh, and he's well-versed in the Old Testament. But he's also familiar with life and travel in the Eastern Mediterranean, and uh, he's, he, most people regard him as a Gentile. I have read one or two accounts where people have thought he, he could well have been Jewish, but it's highly unlikely, it's, it's more than likely that uh, Luke himself was a, a Gentile. Now, he's not an eyewitness, but he interviews those who were eyewitnesses. We can tell this from his introduction to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the, the book of Acts. Uh, he was very meticulous in how he went about this and how he recorded the information. And once again, the book of Luke can be seen as biography uh, and history. And there's a couple of things in Luke which are unique, which I love. I, I don't know about you, but I love the story of the widow of Nain. He, he, Luke records that uh, uniquely. And also the greatest, in my opinion, only my opinion, the prodigal son. The, the, the teaching in this story is immense. In fact, this, this story of the prodigal son is the product of the mind of, of a genius in which the Lord himself was. The book of Acts, which he also wrote, of course, is, is more of a history book. And you can see little details in there which only an historian would be interested in. I'm going to read one of them. I've got everything all sort of labeled out here. I can, I can find it. In Acts chapter 11, and ver, uh, I'll read it. It says, um, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus and took and looked for Saul, uh, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first <clears throat> at Antioch. That's the kind of detail that a historian would be interested in. 
That's the kind of detail that a historian and someone who, was, uh, who wanted us to understand eyewitness testimony and understand the, the historicity of it would record. Because if we hadn't got that, it wouldn't make any difference to our faith if we didn't know that people were first called Christians in Antioch. How many here would go home and give up the faith if we didn't know that? You know, it, it's, it's basically irrelevant in, in one way. But so it just shows you, it's a, it's a powerful little insight into the mind of, of, of this man and his historical abilities. Oh, just before we leave Luke and go into the book of John, there's another wee detail in Luke. In Luke chapter 24, he records for us about two men on the road to MS. Now, he names one of them, but he doesn't name the other. And the man he named is called Cleopas. In the book of, of John, if I can find it, in John 19 and 25, yeah, we discover that this Cleopas is the husband of one of the Marys who was at the cross. So what Luke is actually telling us here by naming this man, here's my source. Here's my eyewitness source to the events, to what happened. This is the man I have interviewed. This is the man who I have uh, been in contact with. Uh, and here's his credentials, as it were, to being an eyewitness. Because, you know, it, it, what difference would it make if he had named them or not? We, the story still would have been there from the two men from, um, on the road to MS. So his name was put in there as this actual little detail, this actual little insight as we're, I'm dealing with an eyewitness account. Can you picture Luke with his notebook? I wanted to have notebooks back then. But anyway, I can picture him discussing with individuals and taking notes, because quite clearly a well-educated man, able to write down, no problems whatsoever. And I actually think he would have uh, talked to people and disregarded their testimony. I think that's how an historian works. He, he interviews people, he's got a technique, he understands when someone's telling the truth. And he also understands when someone is confused. And I, I would have no doubts at all, even though I can't prove that, that Luke would have maybe been speaking to people and he would have discounted what they said or thought, well, hold on a second, I can't verify that. I'm not going to record it. What I'm going to record is things that I can verify and stand over. So we'll, we'll turn now to the Gospel of John. We're told that the, the Gospel of John is very, very different from the other three Gospels. The, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. So you, what you hear when you're reading sort of this type of literature you have, we have the synoptics and then we have John, as if they're two separate sorts of genres of, of Gospel. But look, there's many, many similarities. They're all biography. They all rely heavily on the Old Testament. They all have Jesus as a teacher. They all have the miraculous claims within them. They all uh, record for us that Jesus was not liked by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He was crucified, raised from the dead, and seen by the disciples. And according, so according to N.T. Wright, one of the great theologians of our time, they're substantially the same story. But there are differences. Because in the book of John, Jesus doesn't talk in parables. It's all discourse. There's no parables. There's no exorcisms. We don't read anything like that. We have the, the I am sayings recorded for us. Uh, we don't see Jesus baptized, even though it's inferred there. That we actually don't read about it happening. 
But we read about him washing the disciples' feet, and we read about the Holy Spirit uh, being uh, common as the comforter and so on. So yes, there are major differences, of course, but there are huge similarities. John's gospel would be known as, as something of, with a high Christology. Don't worry about that. That's one of those theological words that people like to throw out when they're writing these big books. Uh, and it's also highly theological. Because in, in this book, you know, John is creating a new Genesis. The first words of John and the first words of the book of Genesis are the same, in the beginning. And what John is putting together is here that the creator of the world has now stepped into time again to remake the world. John 20 and, and verse one tells us, uh, he, he records this on the first day of the week. We, when they go back into the Genesis account, we read about uh, you know, successive days. And what John is telling us, the new creation has started with it because of the resurrection. God has restarted the creation. Genesis tells us about how God says, let us make man. So God created flesh. But in, in John's gospel, he tells us that the word became flesh. So the God who created flesh has now become flesh. But he's also creating for us and drawing us up a picture of a new exodus. He tells us, we know from the exodus that Moses led the people out of Egypt. He gave them the Torah or the law. And we discover that God is indwelling them, or dwelling, sorry, not them, but in the tabernacle. In John 1 and 14, when the word became flesh, it says that he made his dwelling with us. N.T. Wright says the literal translation of that is he tabernacled in our midst. And what I see from that is that in the Old Testament, heaven and earth met in the tabernacle or the temple, but now heaven and earth meet in the person of Jesus Christ. This was a lesson that Paul discovered uh, and it took him, uh, you know, when, we, when you uh, read about Paul's conversion, you know, there was many, many silent years of, of the Apostle Paul, three years away in Arabia. This is what he was learning. He was discovering that everything he knew was wrong. In fact, he'd, he'd done that much unlearning as well as learning, and he discovered this, that heaven and earth were meeting in the person of Jesus Christ. So who wrote the Gospel of John? This is most interesting for, for me, anyway. I'm a, maybe a bit of a nerd in this type of thing, I don't know. <laughs> but I find this interesting. We're not given a name in the gospel. What we're given, what we're told, the only reference is to the beloved disciple. So who was this beloved disciple? Tradition says that this is a man called John who was the son of Zebedee. We read about this John, the son of Zebedee, in the gospel. I'm actually gonna read here. Uh, John 21, the first couple of verses. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would include John, and two other disciples were together. Now, it's those two other disciples I'm interested in. I think that one of, the, one of these men mentioned here is the writer of the Gospel of John. Now, as I've said before, John is the, the fifth most common name in first century Palestine in the, uh, in the, in the time scale, time span we're looking at. And it'll come as no surprise to discover that Jesus would have had other, another disciple by the name of John. 
because the 12 aren't the only disciples. The 12 are mentioned because the 12 are named. Uh, there, there's reasons that why the 12 are named. We often hear the, the term, the 12, the 12. But they aren't the only disciples. We read about Jesus sending out 72 at one stage. We know that some women were disciples of Jesus. These, the 12 weren't the only. And I have no doubt that there could well have been amongst these men a man by the name of John. Now, we, we also, we actually read in, uh, in Papias all the disciples named and also about this character, John. Uh, he's, what he says was, I'll just read out, he mentions in, in, the, in the same sentence, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, and Matthew. These were all members of the 12. He then separates it slightly and also says, and also with them, Ariston and John the Elder. So I have no doubt that there was a, a disciple by the name of John the Elder, and, the, and it is attributed to him and not John, the son of Zebedee, as being the writer of the gospel of, of John. So the internal and external evidence all point this direction to this man, okay? But I'm going to have to admit, it doesn't matter that much. If you've studied this and you decide for yourself, well, look, I think the writer of John is John, the, the son of Zebedee, whose brother was James. Well, that's fine. But for me, reading all the evidence and looking at all, all the writings from different ones, it looks as if Jesus had another disciple who described himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. I've actually heard this man, uh, I've actually heard uh, a read that Lazarus could have been the disciple that Jesus loved. And after looking at that for a while and then looking at it, I thought, no, even though it's nice and it's romantic and all the rest of it, it just doesn't seem to fit the bill. Here's the one I think wrote it. But look, irrespective, irrespective of whether it's John, the son of Zebedee, or John the Elder, this man has recorded for us the greatest introduction in the whole history of literature when he puts into the mouth of another man called John, John the Baptist. When John the Baptist seen Jesus approaching, he turned to the people and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And that's me finished. I'll just leave it there because that's what I want to leave with you. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Thank you.